Scripture reading this morning is found in Psalm 37, verses 1 through 8. This is the sermon text, Psalm 37, verses 1 through 8, reading in the English Standard Version. It's a psalm of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. This is God's word. And this is the second of only two Sundays that we're taking in the first eight verses of Psalm 37. There's 40 verses in total. The remainder of the psalm is a contrast between uh, those the Lord has redeemed, called righteous, and those he has not, the wicked. And uh, the rest of the psalm fleshes out the great contrast between them. But I tried to give you a sense last week of what it means to fret. This thing we're told not to do, verses 1, 7, and 8, talked a little bit about why we do it. Though we know Scripture says here and elsewhere, don't do it. And throughout the Bible, related instruction that's given to us having to do with anger and worry, none of this is a simple rejection of negative behavior. Don't fret because it's bad to do. It's not that. Or even uh, don't fret because God says not to. Well, that's true. He says not to, but... Why? God isn't interested in behavior modification. There's no verse that tells us to stop chewing our fingernails or don't eat Doritos after 9 p.m. God's Spirit may impress that upon us, meditating on a passage that exhorts us to self-control, for instance, but the Bible is not a book of behavior modification. The aim of the Holy Spirit of God through Scripture is behavior renovation which comes to us as we apply the resources that we have available to us in Christ. We don't admire them, we apply them. So David, in this psalm, points us to resources that we have to utilize. Resources in Christ. We're reading the psalm this side of the cross, and so these are the the resources in Christ that we have, resources that steady us, resources that refresh us, resources that embolden us in the faithfulness of God to us. And so the reason that fretting is bad is not just because it involves, as we talked about last week, it involves anger mixed with anxiety, and that's combustive when it's not just wearisome to carry around. We may have cause to be angry for a season, But the reason fretting is bad and bad for us is because it will keep us, if we give ourselves to fretting, it will keep us from utilizing the resources Christ makes available to us, resources that make a real difference in how we actually react and respond to however life unfolds for us. So if I say, 
in this context, the faithfulness of God is a resource that we can draw upon and it's renewable. I also have to say that it doesn't become real to us until we take certain actions like we have here in our text, until we value the practice of our faith, not just the head knowledge of it, but putting it into practice. And these actions in this text are set against a backdrop of bad, worse, and worst. Again, look at verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. That's bad. Be not envious of wrongdoers. That can be worse. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices and is successful at it. That's the worst. So that's the backdrop. This action, these actions, these counteractions to fretting, that's the backdrop they're set against. This is reality that we fret over. The success of evil, to just put it in a phrase. And God knows we fret over this, but we have options. We have counteractions that are available to us. The psalm names a few. And these counteractions are premised upon knowing the faithfulness of God to us. It's not behavior modification. We get strategies for that. If you're interested in behavior modification, just go to the self-help section of the bookstore, find the self-help podcasts. This isn't about self-improvement, what we're given in this psalm. It's not about self-improvement. This is about our access points to God, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who each will steady us, encourage us, equip us, embolden us to live in the world as we're in it, in the world as it is, which is in rebellion to Him. And these actions set against the backdrop they are, they are particularly go-to when it feels like the world is falling apart all around us. Or it feels like uh, we're being torn apart in the world or by the world as it is. So this morning, let's take uh, verses 5 and 6 together. The actions in these verses, verses 5 and 6 together, because each uh, of the actions in verses 5 and 6 come with a response from God. So verses 5 and 6 give us a response we make to God and then gives God's response to our response to Him. And we're going to take verses 5 and 6 together, and then we will take verses 7 and 8 together, and then I am going on vacation, all right, even in the COVID season. I've got to go down and see my mom in Savannah. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. Now, we'll get to this um, action what he does in our responding to him, how he acts, as verse 6 puts it, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. But let's gather around this word commit. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Commit your way to the Lord. Everybody has a way they take through life. A way they take or a way they make for themselves, way or ways. You might remember, you might not, because it was July 4th weekend, two Sundays ago, but I talked a little bit on that Sunday, July 5th, I talked a little bit about the difference between soul and self. Now we're thinking about commitment, this first line in verse 5, but 
take a step back with me for a minute and, and remember, if you will, or if you didn't, here, here's what I talked about. There's a difference between soul and self, how the Bible conditions us to see people as souls, but we're conditioned in our cultural context to think of every person as a self, uh, as uh, sort of a, a self-contained uh, person independent of all other influencers or uh, a self that can even become a brand if you become uh, some kind of online influencer, you know. Thinking of people as souls, why is that important? Why is the Bible condition us to think of people as souls? Because soul keeps in mind our collective as people, our collective accountability to God. Our deepest destiny as human beings with his image and likeness upon us, our deepest destiny is to give an account of ourselves to God. And so soul is who we are before God in our humanity. We're all accountable to God in our humanity as souls, what it means to have a soul. Self, however, isn't accountable to God, at least not as we are culturally conditioned to think about this. Self is autonomous. So look again at verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Now, if you're a self, you say, no, I don't think so. I think I'll make my own way. I'll believe what I want to believe, not what someone else tells me to. And so on. This is how it is now. These are our neighbors for the most part. The people that we are engaging with, talking to, sharing life with, sharing communities with, sharing a country with, a world with. This is how they are. I just finished uh, reading a book called Strange Rites, New Religions for a Godless World, the author Tara Burton. And she puts it like this. It's a great uh, read for just uh, the lay of the land uh, in, in how people actually believe. She said 70 years ago, this book was published this year, so 70 years ago, at the height of institutional mainline Protestant America, our social options were relatively narrow. We could participate in the culture of our hometown and our family, or we could participate in one of the few subcultures available to us, if these cultures, these communities, these foundational truths didn't satisfy us, we had little recourse. We'd either adapt, adapt or consign ourselves to life on the margins. But now, 70 years later, we have access to people across the country and the world who think and feel and want the exact same things that we do. And we participate in a culture that incentivizes this individualism, which necessarily extends into our religious and spiritual lives. Why force our beliefs into a narrow category of organized religion with its doctrines and creeds that are impersonal when we can cobble together a system that demands of us no more moral, ethical, spiritual, or aesthetic compromises at all. Why not combine things, she says. This is the spirit of the day in which we operate. In other words, putting it with verse 5, the spirit of the times we're in is that nobody needs to commit themselves anymore. You don't need to commit yourself to God. You don't need to commit yourself to a spouse. You don't need to com commit yourself to anyone or anything. And this comes right out of this shift that has happened in people seeing their fellow human beings no longer as souls accountable to God, but as selfs figuring out life for me, 
life is a story about me. I will make sacred whatever it is that I'm looking for. So commitment, well, commitment, that closes off options I may otherwise want to pursue. I don't want to be tied to the institutional. That's old and fading and passing away. That's for my grandparents. Or there are older folks who who participate in this spirit of the times as well. But the spirit of it is we want to be free to indulge the intuitional. We want to be free to go with what we feel and desire. And she says uh, what's happened in our cultural context is that people haven't given up on religion so much as they have remixed it for maximum self-optimization. We're all about making ourselves. And so in that cultural context, you look at this word as a believer, commit your way to the Lord. You say, well, you know, to commit means I, I really don't get to keep my options open. No, it's, it's burn the ships. <laughs> look, none of us will persevere, particularly in the day and times that we're in, which are, are so selfishly seductive. None of us are going to persevere with God without commitment. As evangelical Christians, we are right to emphasize over and over again as we do what Jesus has done for us, that in his obedience we are blessed. We don't have to try and keep God for us. This is our emphasis, the gospel we preach. God already and always knows us at our worst. There's nothing about you 20 years into your salvation that surprises him and God goes, I can't believe I saved that person. How embarrassing they are to me. He knows everything already and always, the worst about us, and yet is for us. This is the beauty of the gospel. He's for us because of Jesus and his perfections. So we're right to emphasize this. We're right to emphasize that Jesus does it for us. That's our access with God. That's our continuation with God. We're also right to emphasize alongside this that we have a response to make to God because of Jesus. In fact, Jesus actually demands a response to him. We have a commitment to make. And without a commitment, I'm not talking about a point in time, you know, I, I really meant it, I was emotional. That may be the, the, the point at which it ignites, but a commitment is ongoing. It's present active tense. Commit your way to the Lord. Your way is how you walk through life daily. Commit your way to the Lord. Because without it, we're not going to persevere in trust and obedience. Particularly when things are hard. It says in verse 6 that he will act, or it says in the end of verse 5, he will act, and then verse 6, he brings forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. God has acted already on our behalf in and through Jesus, and then we act as those God has acted for. We commit our way to him, and what do we discover as we do that? God acting for us. Again and again, he acts for us, but now it may not look like what you thought it would. It may even involve what you do not like, what you do not want. You remember the uh, Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal congregation in Charleston about five years ago? The way they responded to that terribly deceived young man who walked into their church on a Wednesday night 
They had welcomed him. And uh, he shot and killed uh, nine of them who had welcomed him into their Bible study. Do you remember that was, uh, as all you know, shootings uh, of that nature are, it, was, it, was, it dominated the, the news cycle for a while, but, but one of the stories, really the story that, that, that came out of it was that the family, the church family and the families of the victims forgave the shooter. Remember that? If I recall rightly, it was over closed circuit television at his bond hearing. Uh, and and it, it amazed the general public. It even upset the general public. We live in a country that will debate anything and everything. And it upset people who have this wrong idea that, that, of forgiveness, that forgiveness means dismissing the wrong thing, saying, that's okay, you know, we'll let it go. No, that's, that's not at all what forgiveness is, not at all what forgiveness takes. Forgiveness always costs the one who gives it. It costs us our desire for vengeance in addition to who or what we lost and won't get back. And forgiveness for Christians, like that congregation in Charleston, it deploys resources we have in Christ that the world doesn't have. We learn to forgive. How do we learn to forgive? We learn to forgive as a result of the forgiveness that we ourselves have received. Forgiveness is about knowing God is a better justice maker than I am. It's an act of trust. But it takes commitment to God to put that into effect, to actually give it to somebody else who really hurt us. God used that congregation in Charleston five years ago in the midst of incredible pain and injustice against them. On their behalf, he acted to, verse 6, bring forth their righteousness as the light and their justice as the noonday. How so? How did he do that? Through their commitment to give to another what they themselves had received from God. And listen, just while we're on this point, the African-American church in America has had a lot of practice with this. If the white church today is nervous and anxious about religious liberties, we can learn a thing or two from the black church for how they have for decades persevered when things were not friendly to them. Nothing that church in Charleston wanted. They didn't want to be in that spotlight. They wanted not to have cause to forgive a horror. Why did they? Because they were committed to the Lord in such a way that they looked like he did when he suffered. When he suffered injustice. The members of Emmanuel AME dis displayed a resource they had that we have also. This counteraction of forgiving one who'd wrecked their lives irrecoverably instead of calling for his head. Now, why didn't God act to prevent the shooter? Just using this instance as an example of how this works out. Why didn't God act to prevent the shooter? That's what we want. Don't let the guy go in there and do what he did. I don't know why he did not prevent the shooter, but I do know that in that action, what happened in the aftermath was a congregation's righteousness was brought forth as the light into the spotlight of national attention and their justice as the noonday. And sometimes that's his purpose. 
It's impossible to look at that particular church in that aftermath of their worst and not see people who are first and foremost committed to Christ. You don't forgive from your own resources like that. God acts. We apply what he gives us. He acts. And again, it may not be according to what we plan or want. It may involve what we don't like, what we don't want. But commitment means God can ask anything of me and I'll render it. And even if I struggle to render it to him, he can still ask. Because salvation is all of grace, so there is nothing he cannot ask of me. And he asks me to trust him. He asks me to wait patiently for him. And that means putting into practice, at times, things that will not make sense to those around me. But nevertheless, it comes to me to do, to us to do, as we encourage one another in these ways, by way of committing our way to the Lord, ongoing. What if our church got pressed into the limelight, as that church did five years ago? Would the world see in us what they saw in that church? Why did they shine? in that terrible time why does any Christian anywhere because we commit our way to the Lord long before the trouble comes and we work in that commitment so that when it comes time to be a light in the darkness that's imposed on us God brings forth our righteousness as the light and the righteousness he brings forth is the righteousness he gives to us we end up looking like him and that's what we want Now, verses 7 and 8. Look again at verses 7 and 8. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Remember the backdrop this is against. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. That's the backdrop. People who are succeeding in their evil. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Verse 8, fret not yourself. The third time we get fret not. It tends only to evil. And that's, that's why we're told in the New Testament more directly the echo of this, don't return evil for evil. Paul instructs that to us in, in Romans 12 as a result of all this good that God has done for us. Romans 1 through 11, those chapters, chapter 12 gets to our response. And one of the responses we render is don't return evil for evil. It echoes this psalm. And the reason why not is because we give evil leverage when we try to utilize it in any way. Fretting about what evil accomplishes, in fretting we give evil leverage to discourage us, to alter our perspective, to damage our hope, steal our joy, kill our peace, all of the above. You know, we tend to externalize evil out and away from ourselves. And it's easy to do in a passage like this one, because this one is pointing to the evil devices, as it says. It's pointing to those who seem to be getting away with it, those who are causing trouble for others. It's, it's pointing to evil in others, Psalm 37 is. It's not pointing to evil in ourselves. Other passages do. But you know, fretting, when you think about anything that we're given as a uh, uh, a negation in scripture don't do this to then do that to to violate the direction would be evil 
And so fretting is evil itself. And this is in us. Why the psalm speaks to us in this. If I give myself to it, to fretting over whatever, it's saying something I probably don't believe, but nevertheless I'm conveying. And that is, I can't trust to act, God to act in ways that are right and true. I don't believe that, but if I'm fretting, that's what I'm communicating. I can't trust God to act in ways that are right and true. And, and not being able to trust God like that, do you realize that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, to the original sin in that location, where God said to the first couple, do you see all these trees? You can eat from any of them except this one tree. Why not that one, God? Because though you are free in this place, you are not free to not trust me. And original sin was a violation of trust. We know their story. They decided they were free to not trust him, and so have we all. Which is one of the chief reasons why we fret <laughs> or why we try to live in anger. Look at verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Now, there is such a thing as righteous anger. I think we have to be very cautious about telling ourselves that we have it, but there is anger for, that's just. Anger over uh, injustice, for instance. Now, that too can overflow its banks. Anger is a very, it's a Mustang. It's, it's a hard uh, thing to corral and to break. Uh, but the way I understand this first line in verse 8 is the anger that we refrain from is anger that dominates us. That is, you try to live in it. It's anger that uh, works into a rage, says refrain uh, from anger and forsake wrath, which is what our raging is. So anger either takes us in that direction or it takes us in a direction that can so demoralize us, anger can, that I turn viciously pessimistic. Uh, I, I, I'm caustically cynical because I'm, I'm constantly feeding and fueling this anger that's been fired in me and it will eventually consume me. You can't live in anger without losing hope. We can't sustain anger as a way of life. A lot of the evil that happens, the psalm is honest about the presence of evil in the world, and there are certain things we can do to, to mitigate its, its spread and, and, its, and its effects and its success. But a lot of the evil things that happen will make us mad and will inspire action that may help to rescue or restore or advance the cause of justice or mercy or both. However, we can't stay angry all the time. If you live in anger, you lose hope. Again, I, I've used them as, a, as a, a lesson because it was staggering what they did, but if the members of Emmanuel AME in Charleston had allowed their anger to take them over and they were angry over what happened to them, absolutely they were, and no one would have blamed them acting in that. In fact, they got blamed for forgiving. It looked to some like they weren't angry enough, but they weren't going to let that evil turn them toward evil themselves. Be careful what you give yourself permission to feel and then act from. God made us feeling. 
We're made by him as feeling people. But he also tells us our feelings are fallen and not always trustworthy, even when we're rightly angry over something that's wrong. Remember Danny Glover's character in Silverado? I like the Westerns. Danny Glover's character in Silverado. I'm tired of what ain't right. Well, yes, sir, we all are. We can't live in that. It doesn't mean we put on a happy face or a brave face and just carry on. Most brave people will tell you they're actually scared to death. What we do, what we're being called into here in Psalm 37, it's not a calming tactic. It's not a way of soothing yourself. And it's not shrugging anything off. What we're being called to here in Psalm 37 is a redirection of our focus and our actions. It's so easy to get so caught up in the success of evil. And the psalm is saying, whether it comes through blaringly loud and clear or that still small voice, the psalm is saying, be still before the Lord. That makes a difference. If it just said be still, that might be a passive sort of, just check out on this. Just tend to your own and be safe and well, but it says be still before the Lord. We see what's wrong. We see it in others. We see it in ourselves too. We see the gains that evil makes. We see the applause evil gets. But what do we know? God is still in charge. Be still before the Lord. It's it's the posture throughout Scripture, being still before the Lord, of waiting on Him to act of waiting on him to do what he does, which is bring justice and mercy. We see the the gains that evil makes. And we're not to watch it passively, just taking it all in. What we're to do in its face is to actively work every promise God has made to us in Christ, awaiting its appointed fulfillment. That's what the gospel we believe preaches. That we can afford to wait patiently for him. That's the posture of the church now. That patience is steadying. You don't wait patiently for what you know isn't coming or won't happen. Patience takes its own effort. The stillness of trust, it's not passivity. It's a refusal to give myself to fretting because not only will that absorb my focus, it will redirect, exhaust my energies in trying to maintain my worries rather than deploying the resource that is God's faithfulness to you and to me in whatever we face, whatever we face until he comes. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together and then we're going to sing. Lord, help us with this. It is uh, so easy to fret and to engage in that evil. We don't think of it as evil. We think of it as it can't be helped. And Lord, show us that uh, in our concern for things we should rightly be concerned about and even the things that make us upset, we're not without resources in those times. That we would grow in such a way that every concern is, is a prodding to seek you. And that that would be our reflex that we're not known by the resistance of, um, 
of some kind of advocacy for ourselves and our cause, but we're known for the resistance of being still and waiting patiently for you. And in the meantime, delighting ourselves in you, trusting you, committing our way to you, and seeing that you act. And we know there will come a day, Lord, where you will take your stand on the clouds. And uh, the curtain will be drawn and the play is over. And we pray that you will speed things to that appointed time because that's when all that's wrong is made right. Until then, every, every measure that succeeds, succeeds for a time. And then we're right back to doing the same work in the next generation and the next Father, truly, you know us at our worst. You know us completely. You know our wrongs. You know even our rights, Lord, are sometimes very selfish and self-righteous. Would you help us, Lord, in this? This psalm exhorts us in a direction we don't find easy to go. But Lord, uh, would you cause us, would you stoke our energies in this direction, that even if we are not feeling calm and don't look calm, even then, nonetheless, we know. We know that you're there and we know that you care and that you're good to us in Christ. And that would be what steadies our life. And that would be what sails us through. We thank you for your grace to us, your goodness to us in Christ. We pray it all in his name. Amen.